Hey, Deer Creek Church, Daniel here. Great to have you join us on our live stream this morning. And if you're tuning in, if you have a Bible around, encourage you to go ahead, pick that up and grab it again today. We're going to be in the book of Revelation and uh, you can flip to chapter 15. And what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to read chapter 15, verses one through four. We'll pray and then uh, we'll dive in and study God's word together. So let's go ahead and grab Revelation 15 and we're going to start in verse one. This is the word of God. John sees a vision and he says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And all those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray together now. God, we pray that you would make the thoughts of our minds, the meditations of our hearts, pleasing in your sight. We pray that you would take your word now, what you've told us here in Revelation 15, and you would apply it to our lives and that you would open our minds to understand these things. You would apply them to our hearts that we might truly believe these things and that you might really work them into our life so that we might live them out. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I think it's safe to say Revelation is an odd book. I think we've seen that. We're in Revelation 15. So we've seen a lot of things thus far. It's a book full of very foreign things, things like images, Things like numbers that have symbolic meanings, signs. We saw a couple weeks ago beasts and harvesters and, and other really weird things. And a lot of times, I'm sure you felt this during our time that we've been studying together, sometimes it's actually difficult to understand. Sometimes it can feel like a puzzle book. But I just recently heard a story of a guy, his name is Vern Poitras. He was teaching on the book of Revelation. And as he was teaching this group of people, there were children present. And you see all the parents sort of whispering to one another uh, because they weren't sure whether or not this would be an age-appropriate sermon. And Vern, realizing this, told this group of people gathered, he said, hey, actually, don't worry about your children. In fact, Revelation is for them. Revelation would actually be understood better by them and they might understand it better than we as adults would understand it. And so Vern Poitras, he, he continues on with his teaching and afterward he's standing at the front and a 12-year-old boy comes up to him afterwards and he looks him in the eye and says, I know exactly what you mean. I read Revelation. I read it by myself and I, I think I understand it. And Vern kind of chuckles, but he wanted to hear what the kid had to say. So he said, okay, so what's it about? He said, well, I read it just like a fantasy, except I knew that it was true. And Vern looked the boy in the eyes and said, precisely, precisely. 
It wasn't a puzzle to be figured out. Instead, it was a fantasy that was actually true. And so that's how a 12-year-old describes it. Here are the words of Richard Bauckham. Bauckham is a professor at the University of St. Andrews. He writes, John's revelation takes his contemporaries' worst experiences, their worst fears of wars and natural disasters, and he blows them up. He magnifies them to apocalyptic proportion and casts them in biblically evocative terms. So here you have a 12-year-old on the one hand, and you have Richard Bauckham, a professor, on the other hand, but they're saying really the same thing, that the book of Revelation is not a puzzle to be solved with our schemes. Rather, it's much more like a microscope. Just as a microscope, right, it takes things that oftentimes aren't visible to the naked eye and it blows them up so that we can face them squarely, so that we can analyze them and we can actually look at them head on and face them in our lives. And I want you to think, right, when you look at our world today, there are certain assumptions that we have. There's, there's certain narratives that are told in our world. Things like this world is all that there is. Right? There's no transcendent God above us. There's no heaven above us. And Revelation instead blows up and magnifies the reality of heaven so that that becomes our focus. Or you also hear this narrative in our culture that we're in control. We're in charge of our own lives. We control our own destinies. We are independent beings who can make decisions for our own life. But Revelation does the exact opposite again, right? It magnifies and blows up the throne of God in heaven, which symbolizes that he is in control. He is in charge. And we have to face it squarely. So this morning, Revelation 15, John wants to do this. He wants to blow up another subject and a biblical reality about God that he wants us to face squarely. And it's the reality of the wrath of God. That's what we're talking about this morning, the reality of the wrath of God. And if we're honest, we actually need the book of Revelation for this exact reason. Because God's wrath is not something that we like to address, is it? It's not something we like to talk about. We often wish it would go away. Mark Twain has a really comical quote. He said, one time, whenever I get the urge to exercise, I just lie down until the feeling passes. And if we're honest with ourselves, we approach God's wrath in a similar way, right? We hope that if we don't talk about it, if we don't address it, maybe if we could sidestep it, maybe it'll just go away. And, and here's the reality. That is an option that you can take. You can take that option. And it's actually an option that many people take today. It's not just people who don't believe in Christianity either. In fact, many Christians don't like to talk about this subject and they wish it would kind of just go away. After all, when is the last time you heard of a major Christian bookseller publish a book whose main theme was about, the God, about God's wrath and judgment? There's very few of those on the shelves today. Or when is the last time you heard a song 
sung by a Christian artist, that made the main theme of that song the wrath of God. Or think of many devotionals today. You know, many devotionals today, they have a verse of the day. And when is the last time you heard a verse on the day about the seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished? See, it's something that we just don't want to talk about. And here's what I want to convince you of this morning. I want to convince you that if you do take that option of avoiding God's wrath, not only are you skipping over a major theme in the Bible, which is not a good trajectory itself, but you're actually skipping over a part of his character. That is God's character that he wants us to see. And now, admittedly, God's wrath is uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about this subject. But just because we do not like something does not make it untrue, right? Nobody likes hurricanes. Nobody likes the coronavirus. Nobody likes natural disasters. Yet we would be absolutely foolish if we thought our dislike of natural disasters and diseases made them untrue or made us impervious to them. So we have to address this topic, the wrath of God. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these two things. We're going to look first in verse one about the reality of God's wrath. That's what we're going to talk about. And the second thing is we're going to talk about what our response to God's wrath should be. And we'll see that in verses two through four. So let's dive right in. First off, the reality of God's wrath. We mentioned it already. We've read about it already, but I'll read it for us again. John looks up into heaven, and this is part of a sequence of seven signs that he sees taking place. And he says, he looked and saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And we heard about these bowls or these cups of God's wrath and anger last week when they were described as a wine of God's wrath that would be poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And it would be like fire and sulfur in the presence of the lamb. And that idea of God's wrath being full strength was this idea from the ancient world. See, they didn't have water at a tap in the ancient world. So they would drink wine throughout the day. And so they could drink it throughout the day. They would usually dilute it with water. And to drink a, a, a cup of wine full strength in full measure would mean it would be complete. It would be 100% proof. 100 proof alcohol. And what God is saying here is there is a day coming when he is going to pour out his wrath in full and complete measure on evil and sin. And so maybe it's wise to start by saying just how much of the Bible is given over to this theme of God's judgment and wrath. In fact, it's explicitly mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament over 400 times. And that's not to mention all the times that it's referred to, but not mentioned directly. And, and it starts actually very early on in the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creates the heaven and the earth. And we see in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve fall into sin. And right after that sin, there's a death sentence. 
There's pain in childbearing. And there's hard labor. And then we see in Genesis 4 and 5, the first murder. We see sex orgies and drunkenness. Genesis 6 through 9, in response to this, then God's wrath is poured out on the earth by way of a worldwide cataclysmic flood. Then in Genesis 10, after Noah living through this flood, the first thing he does is steps out of the ark and gets drunk. And then in Genesis 19, we see the first rape, the first incest, and God's wrath is then brought forth through fire and sulfur from heaven on a, on a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we're not even halfway through the first book of the Bible, right? Not even halfway through the first book of the Bible, the first book, Genesis, and we see that God's wrath is a major theme. So what is God's wrath? What is God's wrath? Well, the best definition comes from a man named Leon Morris. Leon Morris wrote a book called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. He defines wrath this way. He says, The biblical writers habitually define divine wrath, not so much a sudden flaring up of passion, which is soon over. Rather, God's wrath is his strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arriving out of his very nature. So see, what Morris is saying is that when you think of God's wrath, it is not some unhindered outburst of anger on people who do not deserve it. Rather, it's his settled opposition to who he is by nature. Because God is good, he opposes anything that is evil. And how the Bible talks about this is, in the beginning, God created humankind as his image bearers. We were made in the image of God, which means God as our creator made us to reflect his image to the world around us. That's our purpose. And when we live within that purpose, when God is God and we are his reflection, we go together kind of like magnets. Our relationship is one. But what the Bible says is that in Adam and Eve's first sin, and every time that we sin, what we're doing is we're flipping that relationship. We are trying to take the place of God, which means it's like when you take magnets and you try and put two positive charges together. There can only be one positive charge. There can only be one God. So what happens when humans try and be God? It is we are repelled by God. We stand in opposition to the God of the universe. But here's one question people have. Well, how does God's wrath then square with his love? After all, doesn't the Bible also say that God is love? Shouldn't we just focus on that after all? I mean, why do we mention his wrath at all? Don't you attract more bees with honey rather than vinegar, right? Your mom used to tell you that. So why talk about God's wrath? Why mention it? To say God is loving and wrathful, in fact, sounds like a contradiction. Well, first, we don't even have to look to the Bible to see that love and wrath are not opposed to each other. God's love and his wrath are not opposed to another. And you can put it this way. Put it this way. God's wrath is not opposed to his love. Instead, God's wrath is an extension of his love. God's wrath is not opposed to his love, but God's wrath is an extension of his love. Abraham Lincoln 
was giving a speech in Emporia, Illinois. It was 1864, and he was speaking about the subject of slavery. And speaking on the subject of slavery, he said this, I cannot but hate the subject of slavery. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice. I hate it because it deprives our republic, an example of its just influence in the world. Slavery, I hate it. And all of us, right, when we hear that speech, we would say, Lincoln was not being unloving because he hated and was wrathful toward slavery. No, his wrath and hatred for slavery was an extension of his love for the United States and an extension of his love for his African-American citizens. And, And this is actually intuitive to us, right? It's not just Abraham Lincoln. We react this way with things that we love. If you love your child, you will hate the one who tries to sell them life-destroying drugs. If you love your neighbor, you will hate the one who threatens their life. If you love marriage, you will hate divorce. If you love sex, you will hate infidelity. If you love Jews, you will hate the Holocaust. If you love African-Americans, you will hate slavery. So you see, love and wrath are not opposed to one another because God is loving. He has a settled opposition toward, a wrath toward anyone or anything that threatens that which he loves. And remember the context that John is writing in. Right, We're in chapter 15, which is the closing scene of a story that John actually began back in chapter 12. And there, John, we're told, looked into heaven and what he saw was a great cosmic battle going on. It was a battle between Satan, who was described as the deceiver, the great red dragon. And his goal and his ambition was to draw the world's worship and allegiance away from God and instead to be given to one of these two major beasts that we see. And John sees in this cosmic battle, the world is divided into two camps. There are those who are marked by the beast and there are those who are marked by the lamb, who are marked by God, marked by Jesus. And we read it in these terms. When John sees this, this is Revelation 13, we're told that these beasts cause all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, that is every single person who's ever walked this earth, including you and me. He causes them all to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast and the number of its name. And now John's readers, they would have heard this reference. They would have heard this mention in Revelation, this idea of being marked by the beast. And their minds would have been directly brought back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where there Moses is giving commandments from God and God is addressing his people about worship. And he says this, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and with all your mind. And he goes on to say, 
Listen to this. This is what you should do with this information. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand or on the frontlets between your eyes, meaning on your forehead. So you see what John is saying here in Revelation. He's saying to be marked by the beast, to allow anyone or anything to capture your affections, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength more than God is to worship that thing. Or you can put it this way. You can put it this way. You can say to be marked by the beast means allowing someone or something to come before God, to shape your mind and to shape your affections. So it's, it's election season, right? And think of it this way. If your political ideology or political party shape your thinking and shape your affections more than God, John's question to you is, whose mark do you have? What comes first? Are you a democratic Christian? Or are you a Christian who happens to vote Democrat? Are you a conservative Christian? Or are you a Christian who happens to have a conservative political stance? Are you a American Christian? Or are you a Christian who happens to live in the United States of America and enjoy and enjoys the freedoms of living in America? So let me ask you, whose mark do you bear? John says, this is what is going on. It is a matter of cosmic significance. Because remember, remember Satan's name. His name is Deceiver. It's Deceiver. And deception means it never presents itself as a full frontal attack. Rather, it always is subtle. See, Satan's goal is not to make you do a 180 degree turn away from God. No, his goal is to subtly deceive you, to knock you off one degree from worshiping God. So I recently built a play structure in my backyard for my kids. And I had about a four and a half foot beam that I wanted to make sure was level. And it wasn't quite on level ground. And I noticed when I looked at my level that it was maybe just one degree off. And now for the structure that I was building, it was only four and a half feet. So it didn't really matter if it was only one degree off. But imagine now if that beam was six feet or 10 feet or 12 feet, or 24 feet. See, don't you see that what started off as one degree of separation over the course of a longer distance ultimately will turn into miles and worlds apart. So what Satan does is he takes really good things, things like our politics, family, our career, our ACT score, our country, our bake statement. And he makes these good things ultimate things. He makes them objects of worship instead of gifts of God. And when we do that, John says, we take the mark of the beast. We set ourselves in opposition to the God of the universe. And what is God's wrath? Remember Leon Morris's definition? He said that God's wrath is his strong and settled opposition to all that opposes him and his worship. All that is evil. 
A day is coming when God's wrath, like a bowl, will be poured out in full. It will mean the everlasting judgment and punishment of God on all who do not turn from their opposition to God, what the Bible calls repentance, to turn back to God away from your way of life and turning back to God's way of life and placing your faith in Jesus. And I know many people hear this and they say, I can never believe in a God who would do that. I can never believe in a God of wrath. Well, friends, you have to see that that is actually the root of your problem. See, if you have a God who never contradicts you, who never thinks differently from you, friends, you do not have God. You have yourself. So now do you see why John wants to magnify and blow up the wrath of God in a microscope? Because he knows that if he doesn't, then you will unquestioningly walk into the wrath of God and eternal punishment. C.S. Lewis said the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope. Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Revelation 15 is the signpost. It is the milestone that is saying, if with every single step, you are coming closer to facing the eternal wrath of God, unless you turn, unless you turn back to God and accept forgiveness in the name of his son, Jesus Bertrand Russell, he has a famous lecture. Bertrand Russell was a 19th century atheist philosopher. He had a lecture entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian, where he said, looking at Jesus' life, he said there is one very serious defect in Christ's moral character. And that is that he spoke about hell. That is, he believed in God's eternal wrath and punishment. He continued, I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Friends, is that the case? Is that the case? Is Jesus morally defective and unloving because he speaks about God's wrath and punishment? Or is it precisely the opposite? That Jesus is actually so loving that he wants you to see the wrath of God so that you may never experience it. Is God's wrath awful and dreadful? Yes. Yes. T.S. Eliot said, I'd far rather walk as I do in daily terror of eternity and feel that it was only a children's game in which all the contestants would get equally worthy, worthless prizes at the end. Because eternity and because God's wrath is a reality, Jesus loves you enough to tell you about it. And now as real as the wrath of God is, that's actually not the main focus of John. John John's concern is the wrath of God, but really what he's, he's more concerned with is our response to the wrath of God. And we see that in verse 2, that John focuses, turns to another sign. He said, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass 
mingled with fire. And so what John has is two symbols here. First, he has fire on the one hand, and fire throughout the book of Revelation is a symbol of God's wrath and judgment, just like we saw last week. Remember, in God's cup of wrath was fire and sulfur. So God's wrath and anger here is the first symbol. The second symbol we see is this sea of glass. The sea, for any Old Testament reader, was a symbol of chaos. And so water throughout the Bible is a reference to evil and darkness, a world that is devoid of God's intervention and his work. So in these two symbols here, we see the wrath of God on evil and sin. But that's not John's main focus here, okay? So his main focus is on who is witnessing the wrath of God on evil. He continues in verse two and said, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name were standing beside the sea of glass. So who are these people? Well, these are those who have not taken the mark of the beast. Rather, they have taken the mark of the lamb. And now this isn't to say that all of those who follow Jesus, the lamb, are going to live absolutely pristine lives and never get tied up in things that are detrimental to their spiritual health. That's not what John is saying. But what John is saying is those who follow Jesus are those who once they realize they are on the wrong path, turn and seek again to go back and follow the lamb and follow his way and find his forgiveness and find his grace. So, These are the people John looks and he sees in heaven, those who have followed the way of the lamb with their life. And what are they doing? John says that they held harps of God in their hands. Now a harp today, you know, a harp today is kind of a monstrosity. You know, it's this really big instrument and it's always played by a lady who's wearing a white dress and she's kind of strumming it along like this. And usually the only time you hear a harp, right, is when you're at a brunch buffet at some country club, right? It's just kind of background noise that you listen to as you're getting your eggs benedict. Or maybe you hear it during the intermission at Cats the Musical or something like that. But it's always background music. But in Israel and in the ancient Near East, it was actually an instrument of worship and not solemn worship, by the way, not funeral type worship. Instead, it was an instrument of celebratory worship, of victorious worship, of praise worship. That is the response of the people of God to the wrath of God. They give celebratory, praiseful, adoring, victorious worship to God for his wrath on evil. So why can they do this? Because this seems counterintuitive to us, right? We hear God's wrath, and that's something that usually makes us a little bit bashful, not something that we should worship. Well, notice what it is that they're singing, We read in verse 3 that they are singing a particular song. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So two references here. First to the song of Moses. The song of Moses is a song found in Exodus chapter 15. After God's people fleeing Egypt and fleeing Pharaoh who wants to come and enslave them, standing by the Red Sea, God splits open the sea so that it stands on two walls. 
this massive intervention and miracle of God. And the people of God pass through the waters. And as they reach the other side, Pharaoh's army comes racing after them. And God pours out the wrath and judgment, the sea, and destroys God's enemies. So Revelation 15 When they're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, it is a song of deliverance. It's a song that says, finally, finally, evil, death, Satan, darkness, Pharaoh are finally destroyed. It's the song of every single person who has experienced the long-awaited freedom from that which enslaved them. It's the song of every person who trusts in Jesus to save them, who all their life struggled with the slavery of pornography. And finally rejoice when that chain is broken and removed and destroyed. It's the song of every person who trusts in Jesus, who all their life were oppressed by an abusive relationship. And finally, have witnessed the freedom of being in the presence of a loving God. It's the song of every person who trusts in Jesus, who all their life were suffering under a cloud of darkness and depression, and they finally see the bright, smiling face of God and experience the freedom in his presence. See, it's the song of all those who were enslaved by the power of sin on earth, and they finally witness the triumph of God over evil. And now at this point, I just want to, I want to push pause here and I want to, I really want to stress something because many of you still might be saying, yeah, but this idea of God's wrath, I I still just find that so distasteful and you're not the only one. Okay. I actually, you, you might've heard the story of a famous tech giant, this famous tech giant, when he was going through Sunday school growing up, he brought to his Sunday school teacher this news periodical talking about a mass genocide that was going on on the other side of the world. And he held this newspaper up to his Sunday school teacher and said, does God know about this? And the Sunday school teacher in response said, of course, God knows about everything. And this you know, future tech giant said, if this God knows about this and does nothing, then this isn't the kind of God that I want to worship. And we say that too. God, there's so much evil. Why don't you do something? God, there's so much wrong in the world. If, if, you, if you are just, why don't you just do something? And we get angry at God and we shake our fist at God for not doing something. But here's what I want you to see. Friends, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot shake your fist at God for not doing something and then shake your fist at him and object to him when he does do something. See, if you are shaking your fist at God because he is wrathful, you cannot shake your fist at him for not doing anything about the evil and justice in our worlds. You cannot have it both ways. You can't shake your fist at God for not doing something and then shake your fist at him again for doing something. You can't have it both ways. So what do they sing? The people of God in heaven, marked by the Lamb, what do they sing? In verse 3, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See, they finally sing. They sing, finally, God's justice has been displayed in his wrath. Evil is defeated. Finally, his truth has been displayed in his wrath and Satan's lies have been exposed. Who wouldn't glorify his name? Who wouldn't worship a God who would do that? He alone is holy and righteous and he has finally made it known in no uncertain terms. Pharaoh, Satan are finally defeated. Praise God, break out the banjo. But they also sing another song. They sing the song of the lamb. Remember who this lamb is. This lamb is Jesus. It says they sing the song of the lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who is the sacrificial offering for sins. See, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't simply a tragic death of a great guy at the hands of an evil empire. Otherwise, the story of the Bible would be no better than the story of Star Wars. No, on the cross, Jesus drank the full measure of God's wrath and hatred for sin, poured full strength so that whoever believes and puts their faith in him might never face that wrath themselves. See, the people of God worship God's wrath because they know they deserve it. Yet they know Jesus bore it in their place. That's why they can sing verse four. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify the name of Jesus? The son of God who endured God's wrath in our place. For even though Jesus alone is holy, he himself became sin who knew no sin, that we might have the righteousness and the forgiveness of God. Who will not worship Jesus? Or in the words of Randy Alcorn, consider the wonder of it. God determined that he would rather face his own wrath and go to hell on our behalf than live in heaven Without us. He so much does not want us to go to hell that he paid the horrible price of the cross so that we wouldn't have to. Is that what fuels your worship? Are those the words of your song? Friends, God's wrath is not something that we should be ashamed about or apologize for. It should be worshipped and celebrated. And let me ask you this. Could it be that the reason that our worship and our love of God so often becomes cold and anemic is because we've removed the wonder and the glory and the beauty of the wrath of God? It's a counterintuitive thought. But could that be the case? See, the reason Jesus is so good, the reason the gospel is good news is because we can only understand it and appreciate its goodness when it's placed on the backdrop of our dark sin and our deserving wrath of God. 
I firmly believe our worship can be so anemic and stale. Our praise of God can be so shallow because we often look at the goodness and the bright splendor of Jesus and his holiness and his goodness. And we see how pure and white that is. And we look around the world and we think Jesus is just kind of a greater shade of white than all the other good things that we see in the world. And, and so we take Jesus and he becomes kind of like this paint sample when you're working on, you know, painting a room with your wife. And Jesus is, you know, eggshell white. And then over here you have, you know, marshmallow white. And over here you have, you know, Crayola white. And Jesus is just kind of a better option among many. He's, he's a little bit wider. But friends, no, Jesus is so good because he is the bright, holy God of the universe who came and took the darkness and the black of our human sin upon himself. On that backdrop, you finally realize that Jesus is not just a great example to follow, but a savior and a God to be worshiped and praised. And I just want to leave us with this. If you don't believe and face the reality of God's wrath, you will never be able to worship God truly. And here's the real tragic consequence. You'll also never know God's love fully either. Because God's love is displayed in him sending his own son to bear the wrath that we deserve. You cannot understand God's love apart from his wrath. God's love, if you do not have his wrath, will simply be reduced to a superficial emotion and nothing more. Friends, let's worship. Let's worship this lamb who bore the wrath of God in our place. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this would be our heart, that we would stand in awe of you, that we would fear your name and worship and glorify you as the holy God of the universe who so loved us that you sent your only son to tell us the message of your love and demonstrated that love by pouring out your wrath on your only son so that if we believe in him, we not, might not be condemned and face that wrath on the last day, but instead you might open the gates of heaven, the gates of worship, and we can come in and stand in your presence. Thank you for your wrath, God, and thank you for your love. We pray that you would help our minds wrestle with what seems to us a contradiction and that you would help us submit to you and worship you, the God of the universe. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit.